Good morning and welcome to yet another episode of An Unqualified Guide to the Good Life, the show where we try to work out what it means to live well despite having no qualifications to do so. My name is Adam and with me, as always, we've got the Bard of Geneva, we've got the Ivan Drago of the Suisse Romande, it's me. Hey Nick, how are you doing today? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. It's, um, it's Monday again. You know, that's again. It's unbelievable. The it keeps happening. Yeah, <laughs> the degree of predictability mixed in, you know, with the the amount of surprise that I that I greet it with every time. It's um, it's something. Otherwise, well, you're just you know, like whoa. Yeah, Monday morning. Yeah. Whew. Yeah. Just how could I have predicted this? The up. linear passage of time. <laughs> yeah, it jumps up on me. It's like the winter every year. Anyway, um. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm the Ivan Drago of the Swiss Commander. What are you? <laughs> I, so. I'm, listen, I've just, I, I, have, no need, I have no time for titles. <laughs> I have no time for titles. I'm just busy coming up with fun nicknames for right. podcast co-hosts. Right, right. I've got 75 more to do today. Right, right. <laughs> it's a full-time job. Full-time job. <laughs> Pays the bills. What a job that would be. Yeah, what a job that would be. Um, well, yeah, how are you? How are you on this Monday morning? Well, it's Monday. Yes. Um, yeah. And uh, so far, you know, so far, if the listeners haven't learned anything else, they've got that that piece of information. Well, they know that the thing is, we don't even release these on Mondays. Like it's <laughs> it's misleading. If anything, we're going to be caught. Like artists are going to be pulling their music from Spotify because of this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, nice. This misinformation um, that was topical when we made it. Um, <laughs> yeah, since then, Joe Rogan has probably successfully apologized and is currently in the White House. <laughs> probably, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. It's a nice day, sunny day. Um, I keep the curtains closed when we record for soundproofing, but I can see there is sun through it. So that's all good. That's all good. Great. Riveting. Um, well, now that we've hooked <laughs> yeah. the listeners, um, and yeah. you know, we know that they're going to stay with us for the next uh, 45 minutes to an hour, um, what is it that mm-hmm. we're going to be talking about um, for the rest of you know, the episode? Tuesday? <laughs> the <laughs> yeah, forthcoming yeah, days yeah, of the week? Reviewing all the days of the week <laughs> in order. Um, Ranking them <laughs> along a spectrum. That's that's hilarious. Um, right. Uh, we're going to talk about ritual. That's what we're going to talk about. Um, and how that can fit into our own practices of spirituality. What it yes. can mean to undertake rituals. What rituals might look like. Um, I have a quote to to start us out. If uh, if that's if, if that's of interest to you. Let's hear it. Um, and this is. This is from Abraham Vergesi. Um and Abraham says, <clears throat> Rituals, anthropologists will tell us, are about transformation. The rituals we use for marriage, baptism, or inaugurating a president are as elaborate as they are because we associate the ritual with a major life passage, the crossing of a critical threshold, or, in other words, with transformation. Mm. Yeah, that makes now, sense. Now, <clears throat> I think so as well. And I think, I think right off the bat, something that it does potentially is highlight a um, 
that there are two forms of ritual. Because I think there there is in in daily life, um, particularly now, a bit of a focus on your daily rituals, the thing you do every day, routines that people call rituals. But then there are the big uh, socio cultural important rituals like marriage, like graduation, um, like funerals, uh, which which do represent quite a big and profound transformation. But I think the daily rituals can potentially uh, re- represent transformation as well, right? It trans- transforms the mundane into the uh, well, into the important. Um, mm. And do you have any further thoughts on that, Nick? This is something no, you've come across I, um, before. I, you've, you've really summarized it. Been pretty thorough, I think. Um, I think we can leave it at that for today. Um, Excellent. No, thanks so much I, for listening. It's <laughs> uh. <laughs> really all there is to it. No, I think um, so. As is uh, so often um, the case, I've um, uh, forsaken uh, the act of doing any thinking myself and just uh, consulted someone. <clears throat> who is vastly more capable in that field than I am. And um, Excellent. I've uh, I've read a book called The Power of Ritual, Turning Everyday Activities into Soulful Practices by um, an individual called Casper Terquil, or Quile. I don't know how to say that. K-U-I-L-E. So it's a cool name, Casper Terquil. Maybe it's a, it's a pseudonym or something. But anyway, um, he writes very interestingly about, um, well, essentially what you were just talking about, right? The difference between Mm. um, sort of the mundane and perhaps the more sacred, um, you know, is it the sacred and the profane? Is that um, the Durkheim distinction? Um, And uh, and he sort of speaks to this notion that um, a lot of um, the more kind of sacred... Uh, groundbreaking, um, transformative, pivotal rituals that used to demarcate a human life and that we would bring community together in order to mark, um, usually in a religious context, um, have uh, progressively been eroded by a variety of um, many things that we can simply refer to as the trappings of modern life. And um, and that um, in that stead we are finding new ways um with which to um ritualize um and create patterns in our lives um and that um although a lot of these may appear to us to be mundane um and relatively unimportant in the grand scheme of things uh it is up to us how we choose to view those things and um the distinction between um more banal, straightforward rituals like perhaps eating meals and uh, coming of age, getting married, attending a funeral may actually not be um, so big as we think it is. You know, um, it is it is perhaps uh, within our power to um, drawing on some of the older traditions that are starting to fall a little bit by the wayside um, to create ritual in our life in order for us to reinvigorate our lives with um, meaning that um, perhaps we feel that we're starting to lose. Interesting. And um, does it give any any indication of what those rituals can be? Or is it making the case that like anything, if if considered in, in a ritual context, yeah, can fulfill so the role of so, ritual? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, firstly, um, we can start by saying um, that the, the, the way in which um, 
Casper describes um, ritual itself um, is patterned, repeated ways in which we enact the moral emotions of compassion, gratitude, or bliss, empathy, extra, ecstasy, etc., that have been shaped by our hominid evolution and built up into the fabric of our culture through cultural evolution. Rituals create patterns of the greatest capacities that I believe were given to us in the process of evolution and elaborated upon in our cultural evolution. Our capacity to share, to sing, to chant, to revere, to find beauty, to dance, to imagine, to quietly reflect, to quietly reflect and to sense something beyond what we see. Right. Um, and so, so they're um, really, uh, actually, this is even still in the foreword. This isn't even Casper's definition, but it's drawing um, from some of the things that he says. Rituals are oftentimes just this opportunity for us to tap into um, some of these more primal emotions and instincts, right? Um, and to create spaces mm -hmm. for them. Um, and so the big argument that he says is that as religion is on the decline, right? And these traditional structures which provided guidance for pivotal life moments um, or contextualized much smaller, more frequent patterns and habits of action, um, we can feel that we don't know what to do a lot of the time, right? Like if in, um, you know, I don't know, the society of the Middle Ages, someone died, someone was unwell, someone was coming of age, for all of these occasions, you would go see the priest, you know? Um, right. And, um, and <clears throat> for community and so on and so forth and, and introspection, meditation, all of these things, um, we, we, we kind of had a, a, say what else you will about it, we kind of had institutions that would allow us to help address and contextualize these things that in this world where we've maybe lost that a little bit and globalization has created a greater sense of isolation um, and more fragmented community, um, that you know we 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 perhaps don't don't have recourse to such things anymore. Um, but that nonetheless, you know, um, whereas on Sundays maybe people used to go to church, now maybe they go to CrossFit, you know, um, or they go, mm -hmm. um, you know, or they they or their their rituals are more fragmented. So they might go to CrossFit for community, and they might go to Headspace for meditation you know, or, uh, or a weekend retreat instead, um, or prayer and intention setting and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the idea really uh, that, he, that he wants to kind of talk through, essentially the way he separates it is into, I think, uh, four different aspects. So he refers to um, like four uh, different ways in which we... Um, are trying to establish connection because that's for him what ritual is about is about recontextualizing in the same way that we've spoken about um across our podcast right like across this season mm -hmm. is about creating a relationship to the world around you creating community um and finding a sense of peace with yourself as well yeah he says the 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 four uh, levels to connection are first to connect with yourself secondly to connect with those around you then with the natural world and finally, with the transcendent. Um, mm -hmm. And so he says, in order to connect with yourself, uh, he proposes two things, which are sacred reading and Sabbath. But then he takes those and modernizes them. Um, in order to connect with others, he proposes eating and exercising together. Um, uh, in order to connect with nature, um, he reimagines pilgrimage um, and the liturgical calendar. 
right? To be more connected with the flow of seasons, the natural world, so on and so forth. Um, and finally, uh, in order to connect with the transcendent, he reframes um, prayer and participating in regular small group uh, activities where support and accountability are the prime movers um, and contexts for that. Um, right. So it's taking all of these kind of ancient notions and reimagining them, right? When he's talking about... Um, uh, what? Sorry, go on. What was the first one? Uh, in order to connect with oneself, he proposes sacred reading and Sabbath. But to use an example then of what he's Sabbath. saying... Sabbath? Yeah, sh- Shabbat. Like, like the rest day? Okay, right. Yeah, so... Um, and I think this is this is maybe maybe um, it's this is still a little bit ambiguous what the idea is essentially. But he's not really proposing anything new. He's just suggesting that mm-hmm. the things that we do, um, although disparate, although a little bit all over the place, although moving at a much more hectic pace, are still occupying the same functions that religion might once previously have done. And although we used to have much more formalized, much more um, uh, unified rituals and processes. We still have those. They might just be more disparate, and maybe we don't even recognize them as such. Um, right. So for him, you know, he's even saying um, the two things that he proposes, and again, these are just suggestions, right? Um, in order to connect better with oneself, because he, you know, this, this notion of like having time to reflect and sit with yourself um, and to better understand yourself is also an opportunity to better understand others, right? Um, and so he says sacred reading and, and Sabbath. Well, he says, well, sacred reading, you know, it's like reading biblical texts, uh, the Talmud, the Quran, whatever it might be. Um, and that the value of those uh, texts is that we agree upon them as being sacred or communities have agreed upon them as being sacred. And that that is what has led them to be um, reflected upon, right? We We read the Bible in order to live richer, more meaningful, better lives and to try and be better people. That's the aspiration of reading those things. We also enter into a discourse with people from centuries um, who have been reading these books, right? So um, there is this sense of connection to something larger than just yourself. And there is an objective of not just reading for the sake of escapism and pleasure, but rather to reflect on life and to use that as an opportunity to grow as an individual, right? Um, and that, like, okay, I think at this point, it's a fairly un- uncontroversial thing to say that generally speaking, the practice of reading can open empathic pathways as you get thrust into other people's situations and so on and so forth. But you can read rather mindlessly purely for the value of the entertainment, or you can read very sacredly. And he uses the example, he actually has a podcast um, called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, I think, Um where, oh yeah, I know this one. Yeah, where he reads Harry Potter like it's a, a, a sacred text, basically. Um, and and in order for that to happen, what he's doing is like, okay, first determining what's happening in the context of the book. What are the associations that are coming up? You know, how does that relate to my own life? And what is this urging me to do? Um, and a lot of it can be like what you bring into into the text yourself. You know, it's not always necessarily what the text is suggesting. Um, and you can take even, um, you know, one sentence from somewhere and reflect on that and think about it very carefully, you know, or you can be made to think of like a whole passage or an entire novel about what's being said about a character, so on and so forth. And what does that actually uh, compel you to go and do? But his point is like just the stories that we're always being exposed to 
you know, although they create empathy, they create empathy in others because they first help us to understand ourselves better, you know, and it's this kind mm. of like psychological thing of like the multiplicity of self, you know, it's like, oh, there's that part of me that I maybe didn't understand fully until I saw it contextualized in this space, you know, um, helps us to understand ourselves better and the depth and complexity of our own personalities, which then helps us to understand others. And if we really make an effort to do that by engaging with stories in this um very uh well uh, you know uh reflective and intentional manner then that can take us there but it doesn't have to be the bible it can be any kind of story it can be a story through music through film through theater through books as well um and it can be secular nonfiction, you know whatever you want it to be is this but i suppose that the what jumps out about that is that reading a book uh, even a religious text um like a bible i know he's making the point that it that it you don't have to use a specific religious text to have this effect but reading in itself is not necessarily a ritual no and so is this the is there a context a method in which you have to read it in order to get this effect yeah. is what he's saying well so or what reading these texts so he he says um like he says in the same way that he says simply eating together and um, going to the gym or like practicing Muay Thai. I mean, we've referred to it as like violent meditation, even, you know, when we're doing it. Mm. But he's like, all of these things that we already do, we don't necessarily use them as ritualistic opportunities in order to forge deeper connections with ourselves, others, nature, and the transcendent, right? But the tools are all there. Um, and the one distinguishing factor <clears throat> he quotes from a different author um, uh about uh, a practice of ritual is summarized in three things, which is intention, so setting the objective of making this a ritual of reading sacredly, for instance, attention, mm -hmm. so doing so mindfully, right? And he uses the example of saying, look, if you're taking your dog out for a walk, if you set the intention of this becoming some sort of a personal ritual for you, then, then that's already a good start. But if you're on the on the walk and you're distracted by emails or other thoughts and you're not mindfully trying to engage with the moment and we've talked about the relationship of mindfulness and soulfulness you know in the previous episodes um then then you're you're not tapping into that so that's attention and repetition to create mm. um you know uh, uh, an, an entrenchment of the meaning by frequently establishing this pattern you know otherwise it can't be a ritual it'll just be a one-off isolated event you know well uh yeah that's so that's interesting but because uh, i think that um the there are you know there are daily rituals but there are also rituals that are one-off isolated events like the yes. big ones weddings yes of course but i days. think um you have to have um again intention and attention are present in those cases mm -hmm. you know um right like everything can has the potential to be a ritual but in order for something to become a ritual, generally the three identifying things. Some things are explicitly ritualized, but in order to make an activity that we engage in on the everyday that might seem at first banal and make it a ritual, he's arguing that anything that you already do could become that, you know? Baking could be a ritual for you. You know, it could be your time of peace. Uh, washing the dishes could be that for you. You know, um, going on a run could be that for you. Lighting a candle and taking a bath could be that for you, or it could not. Or it could just be right. what it is, you know. Interesting. There's um, 
Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting you say this, and and there are and this sort of individualization of ritual because mm-hmm. I think that um, for the most part, it's rituals have not been individualized. Um, there's a yeah. lot of theory uh, in in anthropology around around ritual and what it means and what it does, um, and people have different interpretations. There's, for example, um, it's sort of first being thought about by uh, Emil Durkheim, um, and he. He basically made the case that, like, the point of a ritual is to categorize things into either sacred or profane. And he had mm-hmm. the idea that pretty much everything in, in society in, in one context or another was either sacred or yeah. profane. Um, but then there was also a guy called called uh, Gregory Bateson who started talking about um, ritual in, in the sense of sort of a few different frameworks. One, the sociological framework. And that was interesting because it, it, it basically was like, well, the purpose of this is to, yeah, show you what's proper and what's appropriate and what's culturally significant in this ritual the other approach the ethological and this was at special events um specifically observed among the yatmal people who who live in papua new guinea um and it was a ritual that there is a specific ritual whereby um men essentially celebrate the achievements of, of nieces and nephews and, and women can go out and party now this is a this is quite a regimented society men and women have mm-hmm. quite different emotional roles they have to fill and this is a time in which those roles are sort of symbolically reversed for a little while um much in the sense of, of the carnival that used to exist in in europe and and still does to a lesser degree in places like brazil and new orleans um and still does to, uh, to an extent in Europe, but it's it's a simulacrum of what it once was. You know, the the Fasnachts in in Zurich or Fishing in in Austria, uh, or, or Carnival in in Geneva, I suppose. Um, but uh, anyway, the, yeah, you you were allowed to, for a moment, live the emotional lives of that other category of person. You will get to actually sort of become them and understand them and, and therefore there is this this cultural integration um and that is is a big part of the theory um but it seems like you're saying that this doesn't have to be society-wide it can be in your for your for yourself to give your own life meaning or you can have different rituals with different pockets of people in your life yeah. um and integrate in different ways across yeah well i think he, t- he talks about it um he he mentions um uh well two uh concepts which are um uh and he, and, he, and he speaks of it as like the internet era right um possibility of being i mean and it's like it comes with other lots of other different things one of which is like you know you you kind of you kind of choose you know you 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 can do whatever you want there's so much available to you you can kind of pick and choose like the the almost uh limitless amount of option options available to you um can be um a little bit daunting but it's also an incredible opportunity for freedom you know um uh and so he says that so he says let me say this clearly however you express your spiritual life it is legitimate if you touch the sacred on the basketball court or on the beach in cooking or crafting in snuggling with your dog or singing in a crowd of thousands during Yom Kippur services or at an altar call well, uh, while you read these pages, you never need to say or whatever, as in to be dismissive of what you feel like is your p- own personal sacred ritual. You can think of this book as giving you your dose of spiritual confidence and social permission to go and do that. Um, and he says the Internet era has opened the possibility of curating and cr- creating our own tailored practices and to looking to our peers 
for guidance as much as any teacher or authority figure. And there are two key concepts here. The first is unbundling, right? And the second is remixing. Um, and so, and so he talks about these two things as like unbundling as in, well, basically unpacking, uh, these age old rituals, you know, um, and borrowing aspects of them and remixing, which is to say putting together, um, multiple different concepts. And it's like, I think you've mentioned this before. It's like, um, I think it's the Japanese who are like, uh, Buddhists and Shinto, um, and they don't really see the, the, the the tension necessarily between the two, even though government has at times tried to separate them. And you can go for different events at, um, you know, a Buddhist shrine or go to an, and, and then go to a different life event at a Shinto place of gathering um, and not see a contradiction with that. And it's like taking that to the extreme of like, oh, okay, well, I go for my connection with others here and I go for my own personal connection here and I go for this, that, and the other. And the point is that because these conventional um uh, societal aspects have been eroded it's now up to us and that's our responsibility to create these rituals and these connections for ourselves but the beauty of that is that they can exist anyway anywhere um, and one more thing uh, to quote before I, I, I throw it back to you he says we've been taught to see the world as divided between the sacred and the profane the religious and the secular we've been taught that there's somehow a line that makes a church building sacred and a supermarket secular that vertical line is an invention Instead, imagine a horizontal line between the shallow and the deep. It stretches across every place and every person. When we can sink below the blur of habit, we can be present to that portion of our experience where we find deepest meaning. Maybe it's poetry that takes us there, or an incredible piece of theater, or psychedelics, or the arms of our beloved, or simply watching our kids running through the garden. When we look at the world that way, any place and any time can be sacred. It all depends on how we look at it. Interesting, and I and I think that's yeah, probably probably true. Uh, probably you you can make any place sacred. the the own the thing that that sort of um jumps out as as a, as a potential sort of critique of that is that I I don't know that the 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 distinct the distinction. Well, maybe I do. I, I, as thinking through this point, I, I now disagree with myself. But I will, I will finish the thought mm -hmm. in order to uh, to achieve closure. Uh, my my initial thought was that the difference between sacred and profane sounds pretty similar, ultimately to the difference between shallow and deep. But I suppose the difference is that that sacred and profane is decided generally at a sort of societal level, whereas whereas shallow and deep is yeah. is about one's personal approach to, to yeah. something. Yeah, I think so. I think. Uh... That's right. You, th there's there's an immutability about the sacred and the profane. I'm um, about like that mm. Durkheim theory, which is like, oh, this is sacred and this is profane, and as a result, we lose, we've lost the sacred because we no longer engage in religious activities, this, that, and the other, right? Because that's right. largely on the decline. Um, so does that mean that all we're left with is the profane, the secular? And he says, no. Well, those those that role, the secular, and he's because he's saying this, look, the the sacred. Um, has been has been giving um, has been responding to our own impulses, our need for spirituality, our need to express beauty or ecstasy, joy, grief, all of these things. It has responded to that need, um, and so we're all all we're saying is that we've evolved that. Um, he even says, you know, the word sacred itself comes from the Latin sacrare, which means to consecrate or dedicate. And to consecrate means to declare or make something holy. 
So the sacredness is in the doing. And that means we have an enormous agency to make sacred happen ourselves. So he's just trying to reclaim that space by saying, look, we've allowed um, the notion of sacred and profane to be kind of monopolized by authority figures. But in the internet era, right, we've seen that authority eroded. We've seen allegiances to those things eroded because too often um, the analogies, the methods um, that we've been using to respond to spirit no longer fit in this modern world. And too many um, sacred organizations have refused to adapt. They've taken a mm. dogmatic approach and as a result are falling behind because they've lost track of the idea that what they're responding is the base human instincts that they need to respond to rather than the value of the thing they're proposing. And that adaptability should be the core value of that. And he says, okay, well, if we cannot get that from these other places, if you feel like you cannot get that from these other places, well, then just know that to uh, declare something holy, to consecrate something and give it that spiritual value um, is a proactive thing. And that although that has been dominated by authority figures, it's now able for you to, to perform. Um, you know, and it's like, that's why people can even say, you know, it's like, oh, going to, he uses the example a lot, excuse me, of CrossFit as like a place where people go and it's like very familial, <laughs> you know, people mm. say, oh yeah, like I go to the gym or like the, you know, whatever, the Muay Thai gym or wherever, like you go find your place and it's like, you're kind of your family. And it's like, well, maybe 500 years ago, that would have been church, you know? Um, yeah. And then, but then it's like, well, maybe embrace those places as community support networks. And they don't have to fulfill everything for you um, because we live in these type of environments. But let them fill that one function and set the intention, do it with attention and repeat it so that it develops that sense of sacred ritual for you. Then find other fulfillments elsewhere. You know, like he uses the example of the Shabbat um, as a period of, of rest, of disconnection, you know no work to be performed. He's like, right. well, he's like, you can uh, rest from others, you can rest from work, you know, which means giving yourself time to play, um, you know, and, it, and it's used, I mean, uh, we've talked about this as well as like, rest can feel like an act of rebellion in this capitalist society, because it's like, yeah, it's yeah, so yeah. counterintuitive to progress and always more and it's never enough. So simply to rest and to do something not for the sake of productivity, but for the sake of enjoying it, can feel like a rebellious action, but to enjoy that, to tap into that, um, to rest from others, to take time for yourself to recharge and to rest from your technology as well. You know, mm. so he says like he has made his own ritual where from Friday sundown till Saturday sundown, no technology, 24 hours, no technology, wow. right? Every week he does this ritually and it's his sacred time of rest and he's like this is my time for mm. me i rest and he's like i that and it forces me to turn inwards you know he's like the thing that phones have done is they guarantee that we're always uh, captivated we're always heard and that we're never alone but the one connection that then mm. suffers as a result aside from potentially our connection with other people because they're impoverished through social media whatever is our connection to ourselves. we never have to be alone with ourselves mm. so taking time alone to do that so he's saying so you don't have to do the whole um, traditional Jewish ritual of Shabbat, but there is wisdom in that. There is wisdom in um, taking taking that that um, treating that day as uh, sacred, you know. Um, and it's not so. He says Shabbat isn't a time to catch up on tasks, nor is it simply a time to rest or prepare for a busy week. It is a time to revel in the beauty and delight of simply being. 
the Shabbat is not uh, the Shabbat is not for the purpose of recovering one's lost strength and becoming fit for forthcoming labor. The Shabbat is a day for the sake of life. The Shabbat is not for the sake of the weekdays. The weekdays are for the sake of the Shabbat. You know, this was a revelation to me to think of Shabbat time as the apex of the week, a climax of living, mm. where you're simply alive and the act of being alive and just being there is enough. And whatever you choose to do, whether you choose to read, paint, go for a walk, take that time for yourself, you know. And that could be as small as like going for a long run for an hour. That's my Shabbat. I shut off. I don't respond. It's time for me to be with myself, you know. But he's like that ritual, it may not exist for you in your organized society because you don't live in like a culture where that where that's the predominant way that things are organized but you can create that for yourself you can make a, a long walk by yourself a ritual you know or an hour of meditation or whatever the case is you know a long bath you know sunday evenings whatever you know where it's just like you're just there and you just enjoy yourself and it's that little special moment for you you know and i think yeah it it can be hard to to, to carve out those um those times and uh i think i think maybe it'd be it'd be worth worth talking about times in which you could but before we get there i want to ask you um quickly about whether the um whether the the book has talked at all about about rites of passage as a distinct form of ritual mm. uh yes so i mean there is uh there is a notion that that's something which has eroded a lot more you know mm. um and uh particularly i mean one one of the um arguments which right like drives this book home is like because ritual is about creating connection and creating meaning and context to our lives um uh one of the things which is it is responding to um is the fact that uh the epidemic of isolation is continuing to grow you know um that we're becoming progressively more and more lonely as people and that as such we're um losing the opportunity to celebrate all of these rituals right because as we, um, as we, uh, you know, it's like celebrating a birthday when you're surrounded by loved ones, and it's not about the quantity, but the quality of those relationships. Um, when you're celebrated by, when you're surrounded by loved ones, is a beautiful thing, you know. Um, but to celebrate a birthday alone, or uh, whatever, an anniversary, or this, that, and the other, without that support, can feel kind of like a sure, a little bit burdensome, you know. And so he says, as our community sense of community becomes eroded, and on average, people feel like they have less close friends and less intimate relations, um, we start also losing rituals. Also, we start placing more emphasis on something like marriage, but then we lose sight of like coming of age rituals, uh, seasonal rituals like spring harvest and things like that. Um, the solstice, all of these things. So it mentions it um, as one of the things which um, we have sort of lost out on and um, as an opportunity for us to to um, find alternative methods of going about that, you know, um, finding communities with which we can start to build those again. Admittedly, I have not read through the entirety of the book, so it may mention it later on at a point where I, where I have not gotten to yet. Um, but yeah, what, what are your thoughts with regards to coming-of-age rituals and what their role is in today's society? Well, I'd, I mean, a rite of passage I don't think necessarily has to be, be coming-of-age, um, mm. but uh, it, it, that is often the case. Um, it, it's interesting because I, the, the, well, the theory behind it is, is particularly interesting. Uh, a rite of passage is just any ritual that indicates the moving of, of one group from one group to another. And there are three stages that that have to accompany that, and I think that's interesting because it it, 
it pairs rights of passage down to sort of the bare bones and 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 allows room for um for integration into new rights of passage if if mm-hmm. that's uh, such a thing as we want and i do agree that that these are um lacking um i mean like you know i I've, I've i've said said before maybe not on the podcast but but that i i think that graduations are weird and an inappropriate way of 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 marking the the end of uh of, of say a degree or, or your high school um diploma or whatever but, i mean high school maybe not depending on the size but but my degree i i walked uh, i spent three hours in a room to walk across stage for 10 seconds with 600 people i didn't right. know um you know it's all it's, it's all a bit uh a bit strange um but uh, the, the 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 three sort of stages of a of a rite of passage are um, the, uh, the, the 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 pre um, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna embarrass myself by by forgetting the names of of the different stages now. But there there's this this sort of pre ritual stage where you are like um, separated. That's it. Separation. You're separated from the group ritually, right? And you're told that you are the you are the um, you are the focus of of this ritual, the focus of this this transformation. Mm-hmm. Then there is the liminal. When the ritual has begun, the rite of passage has begun, and you are fully cut off from the other group, but you haven't entered the other thing yet, and and so you're, you are betwixt and between mm-hmm. at this at this time. Um, there is a quote on that that I have. Uh, yeah, the attributes of liminality are necessarily ambiguous. Liminal entities are neither here nor there; they are betwixt and between. The positions assigned and arrayed by law, custom, convention, and ceremonial. And um, I've, this has been described as you sort of ceremonially die at this stage, so that you can be reborn as as someone else, right. um, as this new person in this new role. And then there is the stage of of reintegration, um, where you are brought back into society in your in your new role, um, and uh, and and become this new person, which I which I think is is very interesting. And I think that there are. Yeah, we are perhaps sorely lacking in, in in rituals like that. There is there's also often the notion of some kind of ordeal, um, but but not always. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I had uh, I had a, a, a I'm sure I've said this on on the podcast before, but I had a TA in my first year at, at UCL who um, said that the uh, the big difference between like uh, Western cultures and and many indigenous cultures particularly with returns to like spiritual journeys is that you don't have someone to help bring you back in the western one he's he made the case that like um taking a a pill at a music festival is very similar to a lot of ordeals that people have to go through in the rainforest but there you have a guide and someone to bring you back whereas this you have in the west you have to do it all by yourself Mm. which i thought was very interesting but like that in a a sense can serve as a coming of age right like having the opportunity to go out and experience certain substances and certain environments and certain types of people and, you know, or even to, like, yeah, like a drug trip certainly would incorporate at least the first two stages, um, even if you're not re-ushered into, uh, what is it, reincorporation or reintegration. Yeah, but, and I think that that maybe, maybe points to sort of the potential risks of, of, this book and and I do think that it it is it is a good thing overall that you know people can assign meaning where they where they find it and and take and, and use as they please but if it's not a um if it's not a a, a, a broader sanction thing fitting into more, more like fitting into a wider framework of ritual that is shared by lots of people um having to figure it out by yourself 
and maybe not figuring it out by yourself and it either not uh not taking time for these rituals at all and and therefore feeling lost and separated or um having a well having a bad trip in this case right like these these times of ritual can be can be dangerous where you are ritually destroyed so you can be recreated again well yeah i mean i think um i agree with you in that sense uh but i think you know largely his point is about um simply um approaching a lot of the things that we already do with more intention you know i think his point is is largely oh you know if you use i don't know watching some like rubbish rom-com or whatever and and ordering pizza as like a little ritual for you where you have like your own space and this that and the other um you know uh whatever little habits and things that bring you comfort that offer you some sort of sense of connection or peace or even disconnection from others in order to have connection with yourself and or connection with others whether it be simply like us going for a meal together or us having this conversation you know or um whatever you know you take your girlfriend out on a date or whatever whatever it is um all of those things um you know do not be dismissive of their um kind of sacred value you know do not be dismissive of the habits and patterns you have in your life just because they don't operate in religious contexts you know a lot of the things which we already do you know um are sort of taking care of those needs maybe we go to like you know, group, um, again, it's a big example that he uses the CrossFit thing, like maybe we go to group um, training classes or weekend retreats, um, because we're trying to look for that need for community as well, you know, and to have a space of sense of like belonging and this, that and the other. So he's not saying, you know, go out and perform all of these other crazy things. And it's true that, you know, maybe there is a, even uh, perhaps there is a danger and it's not, to, you know, not to say that you shouldn't operate without caution, but um yeah, largely speaking, it's just the things that you already do. You know, the time you find to take off for yourself, the reading you do or the storytelling you engage with in order to um, live more deeper and more meaningfully and more knowledgeably about the different parts of yourself and therefore the different parts and workings mm. of others. You know, um, the meals that you share with people, um, the the physical activities you share with people, the opportunities you have to interact with nature, the opportunities you have to reflect and journal and set these things like these are maybe all of the spaces which replace um which have already replaced you know and, and i think his point is like we already live these meaningful lives it's just we've been taught not to see them as that so let's reorient ourselves towards that um and i think that's where i i, I think he sort of gets away with with that right he's not urging us to go create new uh, rituals by performing activities that exist outside of what we do he's saying simply like look meaning can come from so many different things um, not just these religious practices and a lot of the rituals and habits that we already have, maybe they already do take that place up, you know? Um, and if they don't, like, set the intention for them to, you know, place value in those things, in those opportunities you have to connect with others, with yourself, with nature and the transcendent. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think that's important to make these spaces and to uh, have room for this this yeah. sort of thing. Do you have any rituals? Um, yeah, well, I mean, it, you know, when I was thinking about this, it's like, I, you know, it's making music, um, you know, reading books, you know, I mean, I, I 
and it uh leisure should agree so um you know reading stories with a certain amount of depth not always with this same focus um this is an interesting critical lens to take but um uh, but but oftentimes, you know, about learning through other people, that was always, that was always, you know, we've, we've both been big advocates of that, of reading as uh, increase, increasing your capacity for empathy. Um, sport, you know, I said, like, really felt a strong sense of belonging from white. Obviously, I've mentioned it a couple of times in this episode, um, these things. And, you know, now I, now I, I teach others, you know, um, and run like group fitness classes and things like that. So again, that was another point of reflection for me. Um, to be like, oh, this is cool, man. These people, it's like you see their the rhythms of their life. Sunday mornings, these people show up and they do their their boxing class or their spinning class or whatever the case might be, and it's just part of their thing. And to look at it and be like, yeah, man, these little habits and these patterns and rituals, they are kind of like, this is like a little community for us in a sense, you know? This is a safe space for people to be more relaxed, to be de-stressed and to leave feeling maybe happier and more connected to something. And to have that intention as the person who's animating the class is cool because you're like, all right, well, that, that's what I want these people to leave uh, feeling, you know? Um, but yeah, of course, there's things that I could do more. Like I, I want to interact more frequently with the natural world, but I wouldn't say it's a ritual or a routine because, you know, I occasionally go swimming and occasionally go hiking and those moments are like always really breathtaking and invigorating, but like they're not scheduled, you know? There's not, there's not, uh, there's no regularity to them and maybe those are too big a task to say to i'm going to do on a weekly basis but even just to go stand outside for five minutes and simply yeah. to breathe you know would be another way of doing that so um yeah i definitely identify with certain things um music for instance it's a big community it's a big sacred thing for me the process of writing the process of performing sharing studio time with others you know it's like really brought me a lot of connection really the things that i love doing you know, music and, and, and training and creativity, this podcast, like those are the things that create meaning for me. So actually I resonate with this very strongly, you know, because um, those are the things that I live my life through, you know, um, uh, have my relationships through, develop meaning through all of these things. So interesting. Yeah. What about you? Um, I was having a think and I, I don't think I've ever thought about anything in this, in this way before with the exception perhaps of coffee. I, I make coffee. Um, slowly usually i have a hand grinder i grind the beans myself um i often make it with a, an italian uh mocha pot the little stovetop heater where you, you fill it with water mm. and then flame and you hear the sounds it's a very sensorial experience um it engages mm -hmm. the senses which which i quite like other things i haven't necessarily thought of in this in this context but perhaps i will going forward well cool yeah and hopefully Hopefully it's an opportunity for <clears throat> those who have listened to think of those things for themselves. Um, Hopefully. And, uh, and yeah, and uh, yeah, if you are interested in um, the author of the book um, from whose uh, 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 writings a lot of these ideas are taken, again, it's The Power of Ritual, Turning Everyday Activities into Soulful Practices by Casper Turquil, and Tur and Quill are two separate words, T-E-R space K-U-I-L-E. Um, otherwise, Adam brought in some uh, more uh, academic ideas yeah. from uh, Emil Durkheim, who's a uh, who's, uh, uh, seminal uh, anthropologist. Um, and you can find some some inspiration there. Casper uh, Tocqueville also has a podcast called uh, um, Harry Potter and uh, the what Harry the Potter and what is it? the secret um, the sacred texts. Yeah. Um, so if you're if you're interested in seeing his application of taking 
uh, yeah, sacred reading, um, as people do with the Bible and applying it to something as profane as Harry Potter, um, then, then, then go check that out as an example of how to reorient current activities towards that. But um, yeah, otherwise, um, I, I think we can leave it at that for this episode. Adam, do you have any concluding thoughts or indeed any palate cleansers? Um, um, well, uh, the, the other academics I mentioned are Gregory Bateson, and um, I don't think I mentioned by name, but Victor Turner wrote very interestingly about liminality and, and rites of passage. So if you want to check that out there, I think that's good. Um, I do have a palate cleanser. Um, if you're if you're interested in such a thing, Nick, cool. um, do you have anything to plug? I, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I, I, I don't have anything to plug. Do you have anything to plug, Nick? Do you have anything to plug? Um, no. Well, uh, yeah, one of my communities um, from which I draw meaning, I heard Culture Kids, which is the collective of um, you know Anglophone-based third culture kid artists, musicians from uh, liminally passing through Geneva. Um, is uh, starting a promotional campaign where we're unveiling all of our members and it's culminating in the release of quite a few projects. So if you're interested in um, following um, my own attempt, um, my own shared community attempt at carving meaning outside of this podcast and a few other endeavors, then go check out Herd Culture Kids, um, you know, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, all that good stuff. We also have a Patreon if you want exclusive content, access to all of the things that we've already done. Fantastic stuff. I am, um, and and I and I, I you know, I'm a, I'm a what am I, Nick? I'm a high horse on that Patreon. I'm yeah, a high, high horse. horse. It means I get Patreon, to contribute yeah. ideas, and they have to listen by law. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, my valid cleanser. So at the end of this week, um, is a film coming out, and it looks like it's going to be a dreadful film. It's called Uncharted. It's based on my okay. my favorite one of my favorite video games. Tom Holland, weird choice for that role. Anyway. I looked up facts about treasure <laughs> hunters. Um, and so this is a fact about world-renowned... It's just a little bio of, of world-renowned treasure hunter and academic Dr. Ely Spence. Um, might be one of the most successful treasure hunters ever. He found his first shipwreck when he was just 12 years old using diving gear he had designed and built himself. Wait, Despite being... Yeah. Oh, that's impressive. Despite being stabbed underwater twice and shot once, Spencer's recovered over a hundred million dollars worth of artifacts. Wait, this is a real person. <laughs> yeah, he's been stabbed twice underwater. Yeah, damn, and shot once. He must be a great person to have a conversation with. For sure, he's seventy-four years old. He's from Munich. Um, Let's have him on the podcast. Look. Oh, dude, that'd be amazing. East e Spence. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, to be fair, I mean, like, on his Wikipedia page, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mention the word stab, but this random article I read did, d- does mention that. So, cool. take well, from that what you Maybe, will. Maybe we'll get to hear it from him. Yeah, for sure. Oh, that'd be so cool. Uh, do you have a, a, a palate cleanser? No, but my palate has been Great. cleansed. Thank you. Cool. Thanks. Uh, sloppy. Sloppy work. Do better next time. <laughs> and lazy. And with that, dear listener, uh, thank you so much for listening. And with love and rage, goodbye. Goodbye.